As we prepare to come to this table here in a moment, we turn our attention now to Psalm 130. Uh, Psalm 130, for those who are are Bible students, uh, it is uh, one of the Psalms of Ascent, one of the songs, the Psalms that were recited and sung by uh, the Hebrew people as they were making their pilgrimages to Jerusalem each year for uh, any of the three uh, major feasts. Uh, Psalm 130 is also known as one of the penitential Psalms, one of seven Psalms that are so acutely aware of sin and brokenness that it is uh, put into a category that it's not specified uh, in, in the Word, but uh, by Hebrew tradition. And therefore, it speaks to us and prepares us to come to this table. Even in more recent history, James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Psalm 130, uh, wrote of uh, this interesting fact. He said, most of us know the story of John Wesley's conversion on the evening of May 24th, 1738, when he attended a meeting at a little nonconformist chapel on Aldersgate Street in London and heard someone reading from Martin Luther's work on Romans. It was the occasion on which he described his heart as being strangely warmed. What is not so well known is that on the afternoon of that same day, which his heart was strangely warmed, the day that he trusted Jesus for his own salvation, Wesley attended a a Vesper service at St. Paul's Cathedral, in the course of which Psalm 130 was sung as an anthem. And Wesley was greatly moved by the anthem, and it became one of the means God used to open his heart to salvation by the gospel. Psalm 130, a powerful word that we consider this morning. Hear the word of our God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come this day, we come this morning as a, a people who are in need of renewal, as we constantly are. Uh, some feeling despair, some rejoicing, but all in need of growing in your grace, that we may be more and more like Christ individually and as the body. We pray in accordance with your promise that you would use your word to shape us, renewing our minds, uh, fueling our hearts, transforming us that we may grow more in the image of Christ, that we may experience the joy of fellowship with you, that we may taste of your grace when we come to this table. So, Lord, prepare us. Open our ears that we may hear and our hearts that we would receive, that we may taste and see that you are good. To you all be, be all praise and glory in your church and by your church throughout the world. We pray this in all things in the incomparable name of Christ, 
our Redeemer, our King. Amen. Psalm 130 opens with essentially a biographical or a personal testimony of a man who was rescued from the depths of depression and despair. And from those depths, we see him going step by step, rising, actually ascending, even to the place that, confident of his own renewal, he's able to declare to all people who would trust in God that they can wait and rest on the grace of our Lord. The psalm breaks up naturally into four parts. It's for the sake of memory, I've one of those weeks I've been able to put it into alliteration, and so we'll look at it and see. Verses one and two speak of uh, of the condi- of the man's condition. Verses uh, three and four speak of his comfort. Uh, verses five and six speak of his uh, commitment, and finally, in verses seven and eight, we we see his confidence. And so we begin looking at the passage and looking at his condition, and we see that from the very, very beginning. He he cries out, um, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, or as we have sung here many, many times, from the depths of woe I raise to the uh, song of lamentation. This man is in the depths. This man is in over his head, and the breakers and the waves are are pounding down upon him. He's gasping for breath because he is feeling that he is certain to drown. His day is far worse than Alexander's. You know, Alexander who had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Alexander had a bad day. This guy feels like he's being undone, that he is dying, and therefore he is in despair. He is what John Bunyan calls in the slough of despond. And I suspect that most, if not all of us, have visited there at some time or another. Some of you here feel like you live there. So I was thinking about it this week. I've thought about it, and I've never lived there, but I think I have a timeshare. Because <laughs> I'm back so often. Why is this guy so down? Well, we're not specifically told. It could be simply from the circumstances that he's in. Things have gone against him. If you look in Psalm 129, and it speaks of people who have been oppressing him since since his youth. Uh, But we have those periods where things just don't go. We lose things. We Relationships are broken. Jobs are lost. Economies collapse. We don't know whatever the circumstances are that he is in just such discouragement. But... He clearly is. It may be that it's a consequence of his own sin, and he's just feeling the guilt and the weight and the shame, although we don't know that because that's not specifically stated. What we do know is that he is in deep. He's in over his head, and he cries out to God. Now, it's important that we notice here what he doesn't do. He doesn't medicate himself with alcohol or ice cream or video games or shopping sprees, he cries out to God. He doesn't turn to self-help groups as important and as helpful as those can be. He turns his attention and his hope to God. He cries out, O Lord, hear my voice. And yet even in that very simple prayer, we see 
a very important truth. That there is no depth, there is no pit that is so deep that we cannot cry out to God and from which God will not hear us. The man is in deep. He's in need of comfort. And he turns now and we we see where he gets his comfort from. He turns his attention to God. Whatever the situation that caused him to be in such despair that he's crying out for mercy, it has caused him to become more keenly aware of even greater need that he has. Greater need than being delivered from a situation is the guilt that he now knows that he has before a holy God. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. If you have an ESV and you look at the bottom, the note says, if, if you should take note of sin, or I like this, the NIV says, if you would keep a, a record of sin, there's something about his circumstances turned him introspective. And yet as he looks at his own life and then he's turning to God and thinking about God and the holiness of God, he recognizes that whatever his circumstances, whatever his failures, whatever uh, is oppressing him, his own sin against God is, is of more significance. That is an issue. That is a relationship that needs to be mended and needs to be reconciled of first importance. That takes priority even over the deliverance from his circumstance. And so he cries out, if you were to keep a record of sin, Now, it's important that we stop here and recognize there is a sense in which absolutely God keeps a record of sin. It's not that God, you know, is just kind of this clumsy administrator and he knows what's going on, but I forgot. You know, I wrote that down somewhere and I don't know where I put it. The fact is God is very well aware of all of the sin of everyone. We see that over and over again throughout the Old Testament. We see it in in examples in the New Testament all through history. We see the reality of God who is righteous and who is just. He is fully aware of sin. And yet, as we will see, there is also another sense that for those whom God loves, he doesn't hold on to that record. But the psalmist is is thinking in this way of of God, and and he says, if if you could, if you kept a a record of sin, who, who could stand? And the answer is no one. No one would be able to stand. Every one of us has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as the Apostle John says in his first epistle, and if you think you don't have sin, which is speaking particularly to believers who recognize we've been forgiven of our sin, but if you think sin is not still active and at work within you, in your thoughts, in your minds, in your affections, in your values, in your day-to-day life, You're kidding yourself. Actually, John says you're lying to yourself. None of us would be able to stand before the Lord. And the psalmist here seems to recognize that that is something that needs to be dealt with regardless of the circumstances that he finds himself in. And as part of that, he he turns his attention to God. J.I. Packer and his great contemporary classic, Knowing God, says this, those who know God have great thoughts of God. And that seems to be indicative of the mindset of the psalmist here as he's crying out to God. If you, O Lord, would keep record of sin, 
who can stand. But with you, there is forgiveness. 19th century Scottish theologian Alexander um, McLaren made note of the word forgiveness here. And, And he said this, that the word used for forgiveness also carries the meaning of to cut off, like an amputation. And the picture here is saying that, that God's forgiveness is kind of like the amputation to remove the cancerous tumor of sin. When he forgives, he cuts it out. He cuts it off. But why does God do it? Why is there forgiveness? And the psalmist answers, that you might be feared. With you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Now, I don't know about you, but my first reaction when I read that and, and I think about it, and I just kind of read over it quickly because, you know, it's Scripture, so who am I to disagree with it? Who am I to question it? But when I think about that, it just doesn't seem to the way to flow. You know, if I was writing this, and I wasn't invited to, and apparently the Lord's not checking my blog and, you know, decided anything is worth uh, being recorded for all eternity, but the psalmist who who wrote this. But I would write it this way. With you there is mercy that you might be glorified. With you there is forgiveness that you might be loved. But the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Fear just doesn't seem to be the the right word there, does it? It doesn't seem to, 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 to really fit. I mean, if he's removing the sin, if he's not keeping record, then what do we have to be afraid of? I think we need to be reminded that the psalmist is keenly aware of God and his mind is thinking more and more of God. And as he's thinking more and more of God, he's having great thoughts of God. And if he's having great thoughts of God, he's seeing God more and more clearly for who God is. And God is awesome. Not in the way that we use that like, oh, that's really cool. That's really neat. It's awesome. It's more like, you stand there in awe before God. The fear that he has in mind here is, is both the, the reverence and the beauty at the same time that, uh, that engulfs someone. You might have experienced that. If you've ever stood on a, a, a mountaintop cliff overlooking a, a deep gorge beneath you, not on a mountaintop and you can see things from a distance, <clears throat> but right there standing on the edge, that if you take another step, you're going to plunge 100, 200 feet into the gorge. If you've had that experience, you know that two things are going on simultaneously. One is, particularly if you're acrophobic, um, you know, and you're afraid of heights, um, you realize there's an adrenaline that is flowing because fear. You know that you are very close to, to danger, something that could kill you, something that could wipe you out. And at the same time as that adrenaline is flowing and fear, and usually fear should make us want to run away, there's something so incredibly beautiful that you are enraptured. You, you, you can't take your eyes off of it. And that is exactly the way that we are called or created to relate to our God. He comes to us and he has created an intimacy when he has redeemed us, when he has reconciled us, when he's made us his child. And, and that is something that we need to remember. But unfortunately, our tendency seems to be so often to embrace those truths to such an extent that we lose sight of the fact of his glory, his, uh, his awesomeness, that, the same, that 
is frightening for those who have actually beheld it. Think about those in, in the scriptures in the Old Testament. You know, Moses, boom, plops down. He realizes he, he can't look. I, Isaiah, his first response is, I'm a man of unclean lips, which I've always taken to mean he recognizes just a, a glimpse of God, and he's so aware of his own unworthiness, his own sin, that he confesses that he's a guy who cusses like a sailor. Um, it, it just, he just, it, he's just totally unworthy. Those who experience the presence of God have that constant awe, that fear. And we recognize the power of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And then he realized he has forgiven us. We're all in a whole different way because there is a depth of character, a depth of a gift that we cannot possibly fathom. It is so great of a gift, so great of an expression of love that it is overwhelming to us. And it leads us to respond to God with both awe and, and respect or, or, or reverence. And the psalmist seems to be indicating a, a spiritual truth here. That those who have experienced the forgiveness of God have truly experienced forgiveness. They, they know that they have experienced forgiveness. They have a softened heart. Great British preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, a man who has been forgiven is afraid he might sin again after such love and mercy. And so with you there is forgiveness and there is fear. It's, it's, it's this fear that having been so loved, we don't want to do anything that would offend and violate and break that fellowship. That would ruin the gift of God's grace that he has given to us. I mean, think about it in, in your own relationships. When you truly experience forgiveness, in other words, when you know you're wrong, when you know that whoever it is that you have offended would have good reason to not forgive you, but they forgive you anyway. I hope your first response is, oh good, now I'm free to go do it again. Now, anyone who has experienced forgiveness in a close, intimate relationship, which they have violated in, in some significant way, your hearts are melted. Your heart is softened when you experience forgiveness. And the psalmist is saying, this is what he's experiencing with God. This is the comfort that he has. That if God was to keep record of sin, and he's holding out hope and clinging to a promise that there is a sense in which God doesn't, but God is fully aware of his sin, because otherwise he'd have no reason to pray out to God. Yeah. You know, I don't need to tell God anything. What's he going to forgive? He doesn't even remember that I've done anything. He's not indicating that. He's not saying, you know, God will forgive me. That's his job, as so often is declared in too many of our churches. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Go back and think of Adam and Eve. They sinned against God, and what did they do? They said, ah, big deal. God will forgive us. That's his job. Not a chance. They went and they hid because there's nothing in the first two chapters of Scripture that would give us any reason to believe that God is in any way forgiving. God is holy and God is good and God provides and God does all of the things. God has given them everything and now they've sinned and they violated that relationship. And so they were afraid. And so they went and hid. We don't see any hint of God being forgiving there's other, until Genesis 3.15 when he makes the promise that he's going to fix what they broke. There we see a whole new dimension, a whole new character of God, which unfolds through the rest of the pages of the, of the, of the scriptures. 
And the psalmist, knowing that his comfort comes from God, he turns to God to experience the grace of our God. And then, aware of that, he, he makes a commitment, which we see picking up in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, I wait for the Lord, my, my soul, and in his word, I hope. What the psalmist is doing here is he's committing himself to waiting for the, the fruit of forgiveness. It's not he's waiting necessarily for the forgiveness itself. He, he knows the faithfulness of God. He knows the nature of God. He knows that God has promised forgiveness to, to those who are trusting in him. And, and he'll unfold that here in a moment. But he also knows something that we have all experienced, and most of us, maybe especially me, hate, is that even when there is forgiveness, we still have to wait until the fruit of forgiveness begins to show itself. But what, what do I mean by the fruit of forgiveness? Well, for some of us, it's just the assurance. We don't feel forgiven, so therefore we assume maybe we are, are not forgiven. Something happens to us, and we assume God is punishing us, uh, although the Scripture says that for those who are his, God disciplines, but he never just punishes. He doesn't pour out his wrath on those who belong to him, but we experience different things so that we would be shaped. But when we experience difficulties, many Christians think, well, then maybe I, I've not been forgiven. It's over time that we recognize that we have been forgiven. The peace, sometimes that we lack the peace of being forgiven. God has declared that we are forgiven, and yet in our minds, we constantly feel reminded, popping back into our head, is the thing that we did. Making us cringe. Can't believe I did that. Can't believe I did that, that I keep doing that. And our own failure kind of robs us of that experience of peace that comes with God's promise of forgiveness. But over time, peace sets in. The removal of the effects of sin. Sometimes when we do things, it affects our own lives, and it certainly affects the lives of the people who are around us. And it takes time for things to run their course. It takes time for, you know, the water of the river to flow out into the sea, to, to, to be removed. It takes time for the effects of damage that we may have done to be overcome. It doesn't mean that we haven't been forgiven. It just means that the nature of our sin is powerful. And then that intimacy with God. How many of us have cried out to God saying, Lord, forgive me, Lord, have mercy on me. And, and we are reminded of, of God's mercy and of his grace. And yet until we feel that peace, we just don't feel like we can really encounter God. We may pour ourselves, attend church more frequently, more often, stay longer, may pour ourselves into the word, but we just feel distant until time. Time comes and the effect of that forgiveness begins to reign in our own minds, in our own hearts. And this is important because many Christians struggle with the assurance of being forgiven. Though we are forgiven, Circumstances do not necessarily immediately change. And sometimes it's a struggle for us to believe. 
But the psalmist here seems to know that he is forgiven. Though for a time he is still in the depths, the circumstances haven't necessarily changed. And so he says, I wait. I wait like a, a watchman for the morning. And from this simple illustrative phrase, we learn two important truths. First is we cannot rush anything. We cannot speed up time. The watchman comes to take his shift 11 o'clock at night. There's not a thing that he can do to make the sun come up earlier than it's destined to come up the next morning. You and I need to recognize that when we are feeling the lack or the absence of the fruit of forgiveness, it's not an indication that there is no forgiveness. It's just that we sometimes need to wait. And I hate that, but we, we need to wait until God is completing his work. Forgiveness is done. His work is ongoing. And second thing we have to remind ourselves as we wait like the watchman for the morning is the morning is assured to come. And God's promises and God's forgiveness is not only immediate, but his fruits are eventual in God's time. And so when we experience this, we are in the depths. We are in need of God's mercy to be reconciled to God. We turn our attention to God, to his nature, to his character, to his word. That's what the psalmist says. He says here that he hopes, puts his hope in God's word. And in God's time, he will bring about the, the fruit of our repentance, the fruit of his forgiveness. The psalmist goes on, and he speaks of his great confidence. In fact, his confidence is so great that it, he now turns his attention from just dealing with himself, but to declare to all of Israel, to all of God's people, to declare the experience that he has had that God has promised to all who belong to him. We, we see that in, in verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful or plenteous redemption. And, and the Lord is now, our psalmist now having learned from his experience, he's encouraging you and me put our hope in God, to the God of mercy. He's so confident that there is enough forgiveness. There's plentiful, plenteous redemption. In other words, he's saying, God is so merciful. There's not only enough that, you know, he can swallow up all my sins. There's enough for all of you. There's plentiful, plenteous redemption. There's enough of God's forgiveness to go around. But notice what he doesn't encourage us to do. He doesn't encourage us to hope in our repentance. In other words, he's not saying, look, don't you feel bad enough? You know, that should be an indication. You feel bad enough. Just kind of move on. Think about something else. He doesn't tell us to hope in our record of past good. 
Friends might come and say, look, okay, you messed up. We all, we all mess up. We all, we, all, we all sin. We all mess up. We all fail at times. But look at all the things that you've done. You know, of course God is going to, you know, overlook this for you. The wages of sin is death. If you and I have any sin in our life, we warrant that death. There is no record that we have. Anything that we've done good, that's what we're supposed to do in the first place, and there is no extra credit. And he certainly doesn't tell us to hope put our hope in promises of doing better. Okay, Lord, I promise I'll never, never, never do that again. Just get me out of this situation. Well, I know most of you know this. We need to remind ourselves and we need to remind one another of this, that the ground of our forgiveness, the ground of our confidence of being forgiveness is never in self-atonement, but in the steadfast love of God and in the plentiful redemption that he provides. Even those two words that he uses, those two phrases that he speaks, they, they speak to us, they remind us of everything that we are to experience when we come to this table in a moment. With God's steadfast love, and the word stand for steadfast love that is used in the Hebrew, hesed, is a reminder that the, the love and, and the relationship is not rooted in the quality of the one who is loved, but of the character of the one who chooses to love. Kind of bringing this down to earth a little bit, uh, you know, there is no merit right now in being a fan of Alabama football. Now, I think there's no nobility ever being from Tennessee, but that's a whole other issue. But what if you were a Pittsburgh Pirate fan? For those of you who are not sports fans, Alabama wins all the time. What's the big deal? You, you know, you choose to vote them. Pittsburgh Pirates, they're done. They're out of it, well, usually by May. And if they look like they're good, somebody's going to mess it up. They'll sell off their good players. And so if you are Pittsburgh, you're long-suffering. There's, it's not in the character of the team, but in the hearts of those who are the fans that they would actually love the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's not our lovableness. It's God's character that is our hope. And the plenteous redemption, we know how God provided that. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 tells us this. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The plenteous redemption that we have is rooted in the character, propelled by the character of God, who has provided a way to redeem. The word redeem, we, we use it in, in other contexts. It means to, to purchase back, to pay a price to get something. You know, it's what you do when you use a coupon. It's something that you give, and then you are able to get something back. It's what God has done. We have plunged ourselves into slavery to sin, and God didn't just go back and use his power to take us back, but he paid the price with the very blood of his own son 
who willingly said, I will go and become like them. I will live the life they should have lived. I will die the death that they deserve to die, but that will pay the price that will set them free. And in this, they who believe will know what it means, Father, that you are love.